0: Ever since Jesus was born, there has been great debate on who he is and sometimes this led into conflict. You're talking about Yeshua, you know, that brown guy was a refugee,
1: a uh, big socialist.
0: And some people used him for their political agendas.
1: The most famous person in the world by far. I said, no, I'm not. No, I'm not. He said, yes, you are. I said, no. He said, who's more famous? I said, Jesus Christ.
0: Others used him to make sense of their experience. Was
1: Jesus... gay?
0: Either way, there's a clear question being asked. Who is Jesus?
1: The question that our generation of young people on the campus are asking today is, who art thou, Lord? Who is Jesus?
0: You're listening to Young and Sanctified. I'm your host, Justin. And every episode, I talk to some amazing people hoping to cultivate childlike faith seek Christ-centered knowledge. So grab your coffee and a notebook or whatever you need and join me as we grow together. All right, Dr. Paris, thank you so much for joining Young and Sanctified. You know, I had you in a class and I think it was a general consensus that everybody loved uh, your teaching method and your content. So I really appreciate you joining today.
1: Thanks. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: So before we get into the good stuff of talking about a parable, can you let's get into the good stuff of, of hearing about you first. And can you just share a little bit about you and how you got into uh, studying the parables?
1: Boy, uh, I got into the parables through a rather long route. It started when I did my seminary degree back in the 80s. And back then you had to write a thesis. And I did it on the history of how the Great Commission... Matthew 28, Hmm. the very end there, has been interpreted. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations of the world. And I thought, boy, you know, missiologically and everything, just a straightforward statement. And I looked at about 2,000 years of interpretation up to the present, and I realized that about every 50 to 100 years, the way we read this very dirt simple, straightforward passage completely changes. And I was left... With this huge question in my mind of what's going on here? You know, because I was always taught that if you use the historical grammatical method, Mm -hmm. you know, you look at the words, the meaning, the grammar, the history behind it, you'll get it. And that set me on a quest to do more research on what is going on here. So I went to Fuller Seminary, did a THM uh, degree there in New Testament studies. And then went on from there to the University of Nottingham and did a degree in philosophical hermeneutics, which is the philosophy of how you interpret, understand, or explain anything. Hmm. And my supervisor there suggested that one of the passages I should look at as a test case is a parable because there are really little kind of word pictures, hmm. and they're really not locked down to history or grammar or anything like that. They're... they're they, open up a lot of room for how the play for how we in, interpret that. Mm-hmm. And that is how I first got into parables, is, is saying, you will study this <laughs> type thing. <laughs> and I fell in love with the parables as I started interpreting. I just realized that these are such small, little, simple stories, but they contain such powerful insights, and they challenge us and they provoke our thought, and I thought I just need to do more work on this. So after I finished my PhD, I did more work in in that area, and uh, yeah, I've I've been working on the parables now for the past twenty five to thirty years.
0: Hmm. Wow. Wow. I did. I didn't know you had a a ThM too. From you said from Fuller.
1: Yes. Yeah.
0: Oh wow! Wow, that is definitely a. Something on my mind is, you know, what's next for me after my, my master's. Um, so y- before we started recording, you also mentioned that you've been working in cognitive linguistics for, you know, the past 15 years or so. So how does this inform one's study of the, or affect one's study of the parables?
1: Uh, well, cognitive linguistics is a field of study that really started in the late 80s. And it's an interdisciplinary field, so it's in childhood development, you have neuro anonymous, you know, people that actually put them all probes in the brain and mm. study things. You've got linguists, you've got grammarians, you've got all sorts of people that are coming together in this uh, interdisciplinary field. So it's very exciting in that area, theologians as well. Mm. And probably around 2005, 2006, at the National Society of Biblical Literature Conference, one of the cognitive linguistics sections was working on parables. Mm -hmm. And I went over and sat in on their session, and I went, this really fits a lot with what I did my PhD and the research I'm doing. And so I just kind of melded into that group at benefit. Uh, part of it now for, well, since 2005, 2006, and mm. actually was the chair of the Cognitive Linguistics Research Section for, oh, I think three or four years. Um, it ended in about 2020. Uh, so about from about 2015 to about 2019, I was the chair of that section. Oh, wow. But uh, Cognitive Linguistics really works on the basis that the way you understand anything and the way you express yourself linguistically and understand linguistically is the same as any other function within our brain. So when we when we pick up a cup coffee cup and we say, ah, the cup is in my hand, it's all based on how we understand how our body works. We pick it up, it's in our hand, we can move it, we can uh, do all sorts of experiments with it. And this then helps us understand to understand phrases like in the in john where it says that uh when jesus says you are in my hand and i am in god's hand hmm. it's not some figurative little fancy embellishment of language but it's something that's very very basic to us we understand what it means to be in somebody's hand and we know what it's like to somebody else to be. when you're in someone's hand you can Pickle up, you can control them, you can protect them, you can use Mm -hmm. them. And this all helps us to understand what that little figure of speech that Jesus uses is talking about. The other thing it does is it allows us to have a very sort of, um, I don't want to say direct, but immediate understanding of it. Because we need to remember the biblical text was written 2,000 years ago in a different culture, in a different language in a very different mode of living. you know, They were agrarian, walking around the countryside. We're urban now, traveling around in cars. They traveled at three miles an hour. We travel at 60 miles an hour. (laughs) Completely different world tech. But when we hear something like, you are in my hand or you are in Christ, these are all things that we understand today because those same basic principles and mode of living within their world still operate today. So it creates Mm. Uh, it creates a really beautiful link between us and the text
0: mm-hmm. yeah and I remember w- having to read just the first chapter of uh mark Turner Mark Turner right I remember yes yeah the mark literary Turner mind. the literary mind yeah yeah and I you know so like so far in seminary right now it's only been like biblical theology, systematic theology and practical theology so introducing cognitive linguistics was like a completely different paradigm that my brain was not used to. So this is exciting stuff. And I can see, I mean, it made so much sense, though. You know, reading it and hearing you uh, teach about
1: it, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and the the thing is, is that it requires a whole new way of thinking about language. Mm -hmm. But it's a very simple one. And I tell everybody in the class, this is an easy-to-read book. This is an easy-to-read book. But it's very difficult to understand. Mm -hmm. And some people think, oh, you know, it's the weekend before the assignment on that book is due. (laughs) Oh, you know, blitz it this weekend. (laughs) And you just go, doesn't work that way. You just reload Mm -mm. it and then you think about it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I took a very long time reading that book (laughs) and still struggled with it. Yeah, it's
1: very good. Yeah,
0: yeah, and I'll, I'll have that linked in our in the show notes of this episode so people can see it. But um, can you share a little bit about like what are the purp What's the purpose of a parable? Because I, I think most people, I remember, I think in Sunday school, it's a earth like a earthly story with a heavenly meaning or something like that. Right. But I are, so can you share a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, I would say the primary purpose of a parable is that they're the designed to make us think hmm. and so uh when jesus tells a parable like let's take the parable of the treasure hidden in the field the kingdom of god is like a treasure hidden in the field that a man finds buries goes and sells all they has so that he might own that field and you okay you got four verbs there uh finds covers sells and then buys But you've got this incredible story that's embodied within the whole thing. What does it mean then for us to find something that we don't expect? How do we react to it? How does that change our life where we sell everything that we have so that we can now possess this thing? And then finally, our commitment. We go and we Mm -hmm. buy that field. Um, But it forces us to think through, how does that relate to my life? What are things? That I found. Out what was it like when I became a Christian, or Christ came into my life, or I decided to have faith? Uh, this, this finding this treasure. How has hmm. I changed my life? You know, did I go and sell everything that I have? Have I bought that field? Um, am I totally committed to it? And it just forces us to really think through what's going on there. I think the other thing that a parable does is that if we go back to the original situation of Jesus out there on the countryside, mm-hmm. parables are a very safe, but yet dangerous way for him to teach. They're safe mm. because he's entering into conflict with the religious leaders of his day. And, and for good reasons, I mean, they want to make sure that everything that's being taught is orthodox and we don't have faith teachers running around the countryside. Um, so he might... Tell a parable like that one, like the treasure hidden in the field. And you mm-hmm. can imagine some Pharisee or a rabbi going out and hearing that, listening to Jesus teach on the countryside that day. And then he comes back and he, that, I'm not sure about this, but he's kind of Orthodox, but he's teaching some very questionable things. And then mm-hmm. he goes home and his wife says to him, Oh, you went well, and you heard the new rabbi teach. What do he say? He just told a bunch of really silly stories you know mm. here's one. And he tells it to her and she goes I don't get a clue what that that's about and then three months later you know he's out walking from town to town or something like that and he thinks back about that little story and all of a sudden he gets it and mm. it's like he's been carrying around a hand grenade this little parable mm. all this time and then all of a sudden when, when you get it boom it goes off and now he finds himself covered with theological shrapnel mm. and he has to figure out what do I do now? How do I put all this back together? What? How do I think of Yahweh and the law and the Torah and the synagogues and maintaining ritual purity within Israel and my relationship to all these things? And How come I never saw this treasure before? So they're safe in that he gets to teach, and no one can say, you're a heretic. Mm-hmm. But by the same token, they're very dangerous because then they go out, and when people begin to realize the implications of the parables within their lives, it really causes, or it really challenges them as to what they're going right to do about it. Uh, what does this mean within their life?
0: Hmm. Hmm. That's you know, that's something I really appreciated and and still appreciate about hearing you uh, talk about the parables is because you intrad- your you invite uh, your your class, your students, and your, your YouTube channel into the world of the parable. Like you don't just look for the context of what Jesus is saying; you're, you invite us into the lives of the people who would have heard it first. Uh I think that's a a missing perspective of, you know, the lay people is that they miss that. They miss um, thinking that way. So that's really beneficial.
1: Thanks. Thanks. I appreciate you hearing that. Yeah. And I I just want to say it's great talking to you because I have students in the class, but mm -hmm. rarely do I get to follow up and continue the dialogues. So I really (laughs) appreciate you reaching out and inviting me to join your podcast.
0: Yeah. I, I, of course, you know, I, like I said in the beginning, your class was really formative and and just how I think about the scripture in general, but specifically the the parables. So, no, I'm I'm grateful. I'm really grateful. Um so can we move into talking about a specific parable sure. for a little bit? Sure. So, I'm assuming most people listening or viewing this would know the parable of the prodigal son. But, but just in case they don't can you like share you know like a executive summary of this parable
1: cuz i know it's one of the longer ones yeah Um. in order to understand the parable of the prodigal son you really have to start at the very start of luke chapter 15 and mm-hmm. read right the very beginning there it says now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to hear him jesus but the pharisees and the experts in the law were complaining This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So there's the context right there. You've got these two groups, tax collectors. Sinners are probably maybe drunkards or thieves, but a lot of times in the New Testament, sinners is also a reference to prostitutes or women that are questionable morally, Mm in those areas. So he's he's with these people, these tax collectors and these sinners. And the Pharisees and experts of the law are like we said earlier, uh, they're complaining, you know. He he welcomes sinners and he eats with them. He's he's making himself unclean in his association with them. Mm-hmm. And so as a result, then Jesus tells you three parables: the uh shepherd who loses a sheep, the woman who loses the coin, and the father who loses his sons. Um, mm-hmm. and so in the first one with the parable of the shepherd who loses his sheep, it's interesting in Luke's account that he tells us that, you know, which one of you, if he has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, would not leave the 99 in the open pasture and go back and look for the one that he had lost. Mm-hmm. Luke specifically tells you that the shepherd lost the sheep. The sheep didn't wander away. The shepherd lost the sheep. So who's, who's the person with the problem here? It's the shepherd. And all too often we make this a story of uh, salvation. Oh, I'm that lost sheep that Jesus came out and got. Um, Hmm. But really, it's the shepherd lost the sheep. And then he goes out and he finds it. And then, so he lost one in a hundred. Then you have the woman who had 10 small silver coins. And this is probably, this is why I was saying sinners might be referring back to a woman of ill repute because she's probably got about three or four days worth of money saved up there to live on these tiny little mm-hmm. silver drachma, Um, And she's lost one-tenth of all of her wealth. So you can imagine immediately why she's desperate. She lights lamp after lamp to find this thing. But once again, mm-hmm. she's the person who lost the coin. And in both these cases, the sheep doesn't do anything to repent. The sheep doesn't do anything to be found. The shepherd finds it. The woman finds the coin. And then finally we come to the parable of the father who loses his son, and so you've got you've got this progression of intensity from one out of a hundred to one out of ten to now one out of two. On, um, hmm. and so when he comes to these uh, his two sons, you've got this idea that echoes all the way back into the into the Old Testament. You know, it goes back to Genesis, 1, uh, Genesis 2, when God created Adam and Eve. He has he has two. And then in Genesis 4, when Adam and Eve have Seth and Abel, they've got two sons. And then you've got all sorts of stories throughout the Bible where you've got a younger son and older sons. Uh, Joseph and his brothers, he's one of the youngest, and he usurps them. David being the youngest, and he usurps them. So you've got these hmm. stories throughout the Bible of two children or children a younger and older and how one usurps the other but the key thing here is that he's lost 50 percent he loses the younger son who comes up to the father and says give me my half of this estate." and then the really surprising thing here is that the father gives the younger son that money and in jewish literature we have lots of statements where it says do not give one of your children your estate before you die, because you never know if you will need it back. So there's Mm -hmm. there's teachings within the rabbis and Jewish literature about you don't give someone their share of their inheritance before you die, but this guy does Mm -hmm. it. And then the other thing is, you you just need to ask yourself your question here about how foolish is the father being in this situation? Because he's the Mm. one who's enabling what the younger son is then going to do. And I think that goes back to the shepherd losing a sheep, the woman losing a coin. Now we can say a lot of the blame here is on the father because he's enabled this son to go up. Mm. In fact, the older son later on will actually lay those charges against the father. Mm -hmm. Um, He goes off. And then uh, we know the whole story that he goes off into a private land, squanders all his money with... Lewis living and uh, going on, i trying to find the whole thing here. And then, verse 17, he comes to his of and he says, How many of my father's hired hands have enough food to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I have no longer to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he starts heading back to the house. And grammatically, what's really interesting is when the father uh, sees him in verse 20, he's going to his father, but while he was still a long way from his father, his father saw him, and his heart went out to him, and he ran, and he hugged, and he kissed. We get this. He sees him, his heart goes out, he runs, he hugs, and he kisses. We get this piling on of verbal action from the father to the son Mm. there. Then the son gets only half his confession out. Uh, he never really gets the full thing out. And then the father, you know, you get the confession of the sin, but he says, make me way your are hired servants. That doesn't uh, get because the father cuts him off. He says, hurry, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a rain on his finger, sandals on his feet, bring the fattened cat. kill it, let us eat and celebrate. Once again, you get this piling on of verbal actions, just bang, 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 through here. Hmm. And it really shows us, I think, the heart of God in reaching out to us when someone turns to Him. And I think it's tied to this whole idea of the shepherd losing the sheep, the woman losing her coin, and the father who had lost a son is now over the moon about the fact that his son has now come back to him Hmm. you just see all these actions then the older son is in the field uh he's coming and for the sake of time i'm not going to go into a great deal of all this but the father then has to go out to him as well and we get this picture the younger son has been off in a foreign land squandered all these things and he wants to be made a hired servant when he comes back The older son, where do we find him? He's outside the house also, and the father has to go out to him. And then when he brings him back, what does he say? He says, all these years I have worked like a slave for you. So what the younger Hmm. son is trying to get in his repentance, the older son sees as his situation. And the two really echo, I think, the fact that uh, the father really hasn't lost one son. He's really lost two sons here. And it makes you answer the question, how can the kingdom of God be like this really dysfunctional household? Uh, You know, with one son running off and the other being legalistic Mm -hmm. and complaining about his situation within the house and the dad doing things that may or may not be appropriate. But the point comes here at the very end when he he says to that older son, he says, son, you're always with me and everything that I have And everything that belongs to me is yours. And he really lets this son know that all these blessings and promises and what it means to be a child of this person are rightfully his. He doesn't have Mm -hmm. to earn it. They are his. He is not a slave. But then regarding the younger son, he says to him, but your younger brother was dead and is alive. He was lost. And is found, and we really see once again. I think this father's heart for his two children. And it, when you start asking questions about Christology and theology in this whole thing, I think what it goes back to, and this is why I brought these Old Testament stories up of fathers with these young uh, two children in many cases, but the younger son especially usurping the rights of the older one are these motifs that are found throughout the Old Testament stories that Mm -hmm. a person out there in the countryside or the Pharisees and the scribes who are arguing with Jesus here at the very beginning would immediately see this as a story that's summarizing and is tied to the stories in the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. And so it makes us ask the question that probably the father in this story represents a godlike figure. I think that's Mm -hmm. pretty well Uh, grounded. But then the second thing that comes through here is, how did God lose Adam? I mean, especially if you're a good Calvinist, God can't lose (laughs) anything. Uh, But you go back to Genesis 2, 3, and 4, when God lost Adam and Eve, and then uh, the story of Noah, and the story of the fall of Israel, rebellious kings, all the way down to the time of Christ, and you get this picture of this God, God figure, this father figure there sitting on the porch of the house looking and waiting for that, those children to come wandering back. And hmm. then when he sees them just runs out and he hugs and he kisses and he puts the ring on their finger and the robe with the sandals. You really get this fit, picture that from the Old Testament that God has lost something and ever since then, he has been in an active search to get that back. Mm. And when we come back to him, these this is a picture of what it's like. It's a metaphorical image of what it's like when we return to God and how we should be living within God's kingdom, that everything mm. that belongs to him is ours, and we are rightful heirs within that household. We are not slaves or hired hands within the kingdom of God.
0: hmm. Mm. Amen. <laughs> uh so I once heard a pastor say that it, i I'm not gonna I'm gonna paraphrase the the scripture. It says when he comes he he came to his senses. Uh I heard a pastor say that 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 Greek word there and I didn't prep you for this, so we can cut this out too. But that Greek word there um means to like a take a good
1: hard look at himself. Is that true? It gives you a picture. It's actually a very interesting, uh, and the grief would be at coming to himself. Hmm. There's <laughs> no there's no looking there, but it's implied. And when we're talking about cognitive linguistics, this is one of these really interesting things. We know what it's like when we walk up to someone, or I'm looking at you face-to-face, even though we're separated by, you know, where are you located? Chicago. Chicago, Cal- Colorado. Colorado. We're sending a lot of cold weather your way, by the (laughs) way. Um, Yeah, we just hit freezing today, so (laughs) you have a little bit of hope. Yeah, good. But this coming to yourself, you know what it's like when you approach someone else and you see them face to face and you're standing there with them Mm -hmm. and you're talking to them. But here's this interesting thing about this picture is that now we've kind of bifurcated ourselves, so there's two of us. Mm -hmm. Here I am. And then I walk up and I see myself and it creates this really interesting little image of coming to yourself. And it's one, I mean, we use this even down to today, mm-hmm. you know, when we, when we come our, come to ourselves. And I think the whole idea of looking at yourself is implied there because when you come to yourself, you see yourself, you're mm-hmm. facing yourself, you're engaged in a dialogue, you're evaluating that person. Um, and so I think that's, it's a, Definitely implied there, mm. in what what your pastor uh, was saying.
0: Interesting. No, that makes sense. Uh, coming to yourself. Um, so, what are some of the the key? You, know, you mentioned a few, like a, of the key cultural um, background information that, uh, for this parable. Like one that I remember reading for in your class was uh, the the father run, running and how scandalous that was. Um, so, can you share a few of the key? cultural information, background
1: information? Yeah, um, I think the big one really comes at the very start with the Jesus eating and drinking with the tax collectors and the sinners. Hmm. And then the Pharisees and the um, scribes are saying, you know, what kind of, I better get this right. Sure. Uh, uh, So he's eating with the tax collectors and sinners uh well, actually they're coming to him it doesn't say he's eating them and then the pharisees and the experts and the law and the scribes are from playing this man welcome sinners and eats with them within the judeo uh culture in galilee during that time these cleanliness laws were very very important so it's not just touching a dead body or eating pork or something like that but it also involved who who you eat with mm. Uh, because then that 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 table fellowship you have with that other person implies community relationships ties with that person hmm. so when you have when Jesus eats at Simon's house Simon the Pharisee and you have the woman who is a sinner we're not told what but obviously everybody knows what she does hmm. uh, in that context there when she comes in into this meal there. And then she starts kissing Jesus' feet and wiping them. Hmm. Um, She's making Jesus unclean. But also within that situation, she would also be making sort of that role and other people in the room there unclean as well. Hmm. Or when Peter has his vision, he goes down to Joppa, and then he has the vision of the sheets coming down from heaven. And then you have the centurion invites Peter over to his house. And Peter gets to his house and he says, you know, God has given me a vision. And before I had that vision, I would not have come into your house. Uh, Peter was expressing good cleanliness, maintaining the ritual purity as a good follower of Yahweh and the Old Testament principles. So right at the very start, we've got these uncleanliness principles. Hmm. And when the sun goes off to this foreign land, not only does he uh, squander his living there, mm-hmm. the older son mm-hmm. accuses him of sleeping with prostitutes as well. It's not in the younger son's story in the first part of the parable, mm-hmm. but he is making himself unclean. And by going off to that distant country, he's also saying that my religion, my culture, my family, all that you can take and just shove it somewhere. Mm-hmm. I don't want anything of it. So you have a person who's in. Total, he's not having an argument within his family. He wants nothing at all to do with them any longer. Hmm. And by going off, he's unclean. But then we have a progression of his uncleanliness because when he runs out of money, then he has to hire himself out to one of the servants, of one of the people in that land. So now he's not only unclean and living in this foreign land, but now he's underneath them. and he's becoming a servant to one of them. And then this guy sends him out to the fields to feed the pigs. So his whole progression from cleanliness and community to complete uncleanliness and isolation is just a very tragic slide that we see taking place within the story. Mm -hmm. And all those issues are are really important to explore within the story. Then you also add these things of the father bringing the fat calf, kill it, let us eat and celebrate. The fat calf, if you were a wealthy landowner, You would have certain calves that from the day they were born, you don't put them out into the pasture. These are the ones that you keep in a small pen close to the farm. Uh, You've picked them out specifically because when you notice all the calves at the beginning of the year, these were the fatter ones and they seem to be the ones I like to eat the most and seem to be the healthiest. Hmm. And you would want to fatten them up and get them really special. And so these calves were very, very valuable. Uh, mm. Think of like what you would pay for a wedding ceremony. This, this calf is like a wedding ceremony. Mm. It's, it's what you've got invested there. And you would keep it for, oh, let's say three or four big events during your life. Uh, maybe your son's wedding or um, if a king comes to visit or a royalty comes to visit your region. These these are very, very precious items. So when he brings that calf and kills it, it just shows how important the return of this child is. Hmm. Uh, let me see, what else do we have? Koshwe. Uh Koshwe, uh, what another interesting thing that takes place here is the dialogue with the older son. I talked a little bit about the younger son. Mm-hmm. But with the older son, when he hears all the music and dancing taking place in the house and he gets closer, uh, he asks one of the slaves, you know, what's going on? Verse 26, he says, you know, what's going on here? And then the slave replies, and it's very interesting, the slave says, your brother has returned and your father has killed the fat calf. You really see this social striation there. This this person is a hired slave while they're a slave working on the land there. And so you see the separation and position. You know, he's not my father, he's not my brother, but he is your brother, he is your father taking place. And then hmm. when the father goes out, um when the father goes out and appeals to the son he answered his father. He says, look, all these many years have worked like a slave for you and never disobeyed your commands, probably tying back to the, if we see the father as a godlike figure, tying back to the Torah and the Old Testament uh, covenants. Yeah, you never gave me even a ghost so I could celebrate with my friends. And once again, you see these cultural breaks with that family. He doesn't want to celebrate with the father. Hmm. He wants to go off like the younger son does with his buddy. And then he says, but when this son of yours Hmm. returned, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you killed the fat calf for him. And you really get this picture that within this family, that the son still doesn't see himself. The slave says, your brother, your father. Now the son says, your son. You did this, you did this, you did this. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really helps us to see how dysfunctional the family is, but also mm-hmm. during that day and within that culture, this whole idea of saying types of things like this to your father, you know that this is your son, not my brother, that these are these are the things that you have done that are wrong, is really offensive and shameful. For the son to be speaking to his father like this. And it gives us an insight into just how broken the relationship is there between the father and the older son as well. Mm-hmm. Hmm.
0: Interesting. Interesting. So, do what? You th- why do you think that, or how should people interpret then, you know, Jesus breaking these um, purity ritual laws? Is it is it that they no longer apply? Is it that he was actually breaking the law, or yeah you know, how 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 are we supposed to
1: interpret that? Well, that would be a whole other podcast in itself. <laughs> sure, but one of the things and it goes into um, uh, Jesus's miracles as well, and hmm. this is a class I've tried getting forward to teach for years, doing one on the miracles of Jesus, hmm. but. According to the Old Testament precepts, if, um, let's say I've got some, I've got a McVitie's digestive biscuit here and just got this out of the package, so I know it's nice and clean, but if I dropped it on the floor, you know, you got the five-second rule, but if I pick it up six or seven, no, it's kind of dirty and it's got dog hair and stuff like this in it. In the Old Testament, it didn't, and in the New Testament as well, it didn't work on how we see it as far as like germs and dirt. It really worked mm-hmm. on issues of purity. So, um, let me see what we, uh, le- leprosy would be a great one is that if someone has these bodily sores or leprosy, uh, and it's not the same thing as we call leprosy today. That doesn't reach the Middle East until around 800 AD. Um, But let's say you've got these open sores or something on your body. Uh, Oh, I've got a better example. The woman with the hemorrhage. Mm. You've got this woman who's hemorrhaging in Mark chapter 7, I believe it is, uh, who would be ceremonially and richly unclean. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so she would have to live outside the village or the town. But here Jesus is walking to Capernaum, going to heal Jairus, raise Jairus' daughter from the dead, mm-hmm. and she does the bump and grind through the crowd to touch Jesus. Now, according to the Old Testament, all the people in the crowd there are now ceremonially unclean, also because she has touched them. And on Jairus' side, his miracle worker, who is trying to get back to his house as quickly as possible, has just been made unclean as well by this mm-hmm. woman. The way it works that's completely different is that in the Old Testament, uncleanliness defiles cleanliness. With the person of Christ, what we have is now cleanliness restores uncleanliness. Hmm. So when the woman touches Jesus, Jesus isn't unclean, she's now clean. Hmm. And he even turns to her and says, he calls her daughter, showing the reestablishment of relationships, and he says, "Go your way, because your faith has made you well, or has healed you." Uh, some uh, translate as saved, but mm-hmm. you see, it following that direction, so when Jesus is up there eating with these tax collectors and sinners, the thing that and we wouldn't get either. We would be in the same situation as the Pharisees and the uh, and the experts in the law, because we've been to seminary. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> We would be saying, what is this guy doing? He shouldn't be doing that. Uh, With him, he is bringing cleanliness into their midst. It's not that they are defiling him, but he is actually restoring them. Hmm. So uh, it's it's sort of like a little micro picture of what we see in the parables with God finding the sheep, finding the coin, finding the sons, uh, up there, it's the same thing, that you have this restoration that's taking place on a much slower scale. It's not like, oh, I found it. But mm-hmm. these people are are being restored through their being in the presence of Christ. And their presence with Jesus is not defiling heaven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Interesting.
0: I, I, The second interview of this series was Dr. Darrell Bach, and I asked him a similar question, you know, how are we supposed to... Interpret this, and he—it's interesting because he said, it, it, you know, it, the law is Jesus's. So whether or not he broke it, I mean, it, that's not up, up for debate because it's his law. And I really liked that too. But it's a—I think that's something that a lot of um, current believers are wrestling with: is is how do we interpret these these old laws, you know, pur- purity laws and and whatnot? So.
1: Yeah, especially especially when you see how the church has gotten behind these don't say gay bills or uh, we're not going to teach black history or we're going to really clamp down on laws against uh, immigrants coming into the country. Um, you look at the parables and you go, man, the message of is directly, or you look at what Jesus is doing. Uh, I think if it was written today, uh, we would see now, all the tax collectors, you say LGBTQ community, or you could say mm. uh, illegal immigrants, uh, perhaps even drug dealers, mm. uh, were coming to Jesus. All these people that, those within the church, look out and judge like the Pharisees and the scribes mm-hmm. would see as, oh, we don't associate with that, and we don't associate with people who, who associate with that that it really just flies in the face of it. You know, where's Jesus? He's out there with these very people. Hmm. And he's hmm. and he's he's eating and drinking with them. Mm-hmm. You know, so much so that they accuse him of being a drunkard and a glutton. Um, yeah. Hmm. So
0: then I think, because I, I, I've seen um, like a, a, our more progressive brother and sisters um, use like th- these three parables as a way to like affirm, um, you know, different communities. And so I guess what's, what's, what do, what is Jesus? So he's eating with them. He's, you know, he's breaking this barrier between clean and unclean, but what does that mean for those who were clean? Does that, is it like slapping a, uh, you're no longer unclean, so live that way? Or what does it mean for those communities? Um, I, I think, guess in the, in the context of scripture, we could stick there.
1: Yeah, I think um, Peter and Paul is a great example of this. Paul is out there with hmm. the Gentiles, these very unclean people from a Jewish perspective, mm-hmm. um, and he's up in Antioch, and he, Paul is eating and drinking with the Gentiles. But then when Peter comes up, he withdraws from those groups. Actually, Peter comes up, and it looks like he's eating and drinking with them. But then when other conservative members of the church come up, he withdraws. He's no longer fellowshipping, eating, drinking with the Gentiles. Mm. Mm. And then Paul Paul calls him on the table for it, that, uh, no, this is what you're, you know, there is no difference between Jew and Greek, male, female, slave or free, uh, that we're all equal before Christ, and we need to be living our lives in light of that. And also these these lines that we draw, you know who's in and who's out of you know, oh we don't associate with those people what we will with these people. that continually you know changes throughout history. And so um, you know you you just go back to the 1800s and um, you know Lau them where you know opium drugs were rampant throughout. The united states but now when we talk about these things this is this is why these groups that we really have to be careful of and people who often feel very marginalized within the church if they have an opiate opioid uh problem a lot of times on no part of their own but i digress i'm getting off top tangent for sure
0: that. no no that's fine um so where does the christology um, come up in this then. So what are, what are we supposed to view of Christ in all of this? And it could be a drawing from um, the whole chapter of of that Luke.
1: Uh-huh. Um, I think the Christology comes in here is that, as I was saying, it goes back to that first beginning passage there, that Christ really sees himself as the shepherd who's running around the hillside looking for that white sheep he lost. hmm. Um, and then the one that, would have, when we we're talking about cultural background, the the woman who lost a coin. I mean, how is the kingdom of God like a poor woman who only has ten silver coins? Uh, because now all of a sudden she is the godlike figure in this story. So to have a woman, a godlike figure, who's looking for one of her small silver coins, uh, would have been very provocative for the rabbis, for the Pharisees and the scribes to see Yahweh that way and then the Father. And so read the very start that Jesus is eating and he's having these tax collectors and sinners come to him. Definitely gives you a picture that Jesus sees himself as the one running around the hillside looking for that lost sheep. He is the, the woman looking for that coin. He is the Father waiting for those two sons and seeking and searching and looking for them. And so I think it gives you a Insight into how Jesus sees his role within the world that he doesn't see himself as just a rabbi or a teacher or an expert in the law, that he sees his role as the one who is, who is uh, doing what God's done since Genesis, running around creation looking for those who he has lost. Hmm. Hmm.
0: So that's interesting, then. So do you think, like, once the Pharisees, like, you know, it clicked for them, do you think they would draw that similar conclusion that Jesus was also comparing himself to the God of Israel?
1: I, I think so. Uh, hmm. In two senses. The first one is, let's kind of do what that's different, is in the book of Acts we're told that many Pharisees then became uh, followers of Christ. And so I think a lot of the Pharisees were people who engaged in dialogues like this with Jesus that we see in the Gospels. Then when we come over to the book of Acts, it's like that theological integrity blew up and all of a sudden, oh my goodness, I'm going to have to become a follower of Jesus now. Um, Hmm. On the other hand, when Jesus is is being... uh, Questioned by the religious leaders during his trial at the very end, and Matthew, the high priest, asks him, and he he uses language that's exorcistic, like he's trying to exorcise Jesus. He says, "I adjure you by the name of the Most High God, tell us if you are the Christ." And Jesus then says, uh, "Like it's like this, this great religious." statement the high priest has said just bounced off only teflon and he says uh you have said yourself and you shall see the son of man uh coming on the clouds of heaven and so right there i think jesus really clearly states that i see myself as these messianic figures from the old testament that the one coming to redeem the world and then this is why the high priest and they go uh, what further need do we have and they They've ripped their robes, that that they've just been defiled by what this false teacher has said in their presence. So I think, yeah, definitely, yes.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Because that's something, you know, in in this journey of Christology that it's very interesting to see the little, little, like, nuggets where Jesus alludes that he is the God of uh, Yahweh of Israel. Yes. Very fascinating So thank you so much again for your time and your expertise. Uh, I do hope that people are drawn to your YouTube channel, you know, free information there. Um, But thank you so much, Dr. Paris.
1: Yeah, I've got over 200 videos up in there. Anyways, free to make use of them however they would like.
0: Yeah, yeah. I'll put the, the link in the show notes if, you know, they can just click it and get there really easily. But thank you again so much. Yeah, thank you
1: for the time. It's been great talking with you, Justin
0: you've just listened to another episode of young and sanctified you can support us by continuing to listen sharing an episode with a friend or leaving a review find us on instagram or facebook and if you'd like to leave some feedback you can reach out to justin personally through his email which you can find in the show notes your feedback helps us grow as a podcast until next time friends